couple of things before we get started. Uh, first of all, we are looking to put together a um, kind of a little reel, if you want to call it that, even though that's probably not proper terminology in this day and age, but a collection, let's call it that, a collection of testimonies. And what we want to do is use these for Miracle Sunday so that uh, we can show that as part of that service. And these are, would be things that, you know, that, that God has done for you, right? If you have been healed of something, if you have received, you know, some guidance that has proven to be uh, invaluable in terms of your personal life, your business, whatever it may be, uh, we would love to, um, to have you share that. And we want to we go ahead and put that together ahead of time. And so uh, Nick, who sort of does our video stuff, is going to put together a, just a, a little movie, if you want to call it that, of these various testimonies. So if you have something that you would like to share, would you please see him at the end of the service? Nick is up there in the sound booth waving, if you don't know who he is. Um, and he will schedule a time with you to put this together. And so, you know, I would love to have, because, and the reason for that, just to explain that part is, uh, we've talked about this enough, the, the idea that there is great power in those testimonies. And as others that may be here on that particular Sunday hear what God has done for others, it raises their level of faith that God will do that same thing for them or something uh, maybe totally different. But at least they understand that God still um, does miracles, that he still answers prayers in very real and very tangible ways. Okay. Second thing is that if you were here on Wednesday night as a participant in our prayer service, would you please stand? Okay. It was perhaps one of the most powerful and profound services we have ever had here. Okay. I'm not going to stand here and talk about it because you'll just think, well, he's supposed to do that. <laughs> or he's biased. So what I want you to do is look around and, and ask one of these people what it was like. Okay. And hopefully that will encourage you to come the next time. <laughs> All right? So, uh, you may sit. Thank you very much. Um, and now, before we get started today, I just, I'd like us all to close our eyes for a moment. I just want to invite the Holy Spirit and see what, uh, what he may want to do before I get on with uh, what I think he wants me to do. So, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you come now and you that you come and touch your people. We just thank you for your presence.
We are in what I believe is uh, the fourth week of a sermon series called Come Holy Spirit. And so uh, the message this week is titled The Least of These. And um, I was thinking about this and some of the scriptures that, were, uh, that are attached to this message and thinking you know, how, to, how to sort of get into that, how to introduce this. And uh, the idea of mission creep came into my mind. Now, if you've never heard the term before, um, it's a term that's used both in the military world and then first, and then has sort of grown into the business world as well. All right? And it was originally sort of coined to describe what happened in Somalia back in uh, 1993. And if you will recall, the U.S. began um, a mission to aid the Somalis who were starving and um, they had all sorts of health issues and so forth. And so the United States jumped in and started to provide aid to the Somalis. But what happened was that mission grew over time. And we, we were doing more and more things there. And it ultimately sort of ended in the Battle of Mogadishu, which is also no po kind of popularly known as Black Hawk Down, the uh, incident where there was one of our Black Hawk helicopters was shot down, and 18 American servicemen lost their lives as a result of that. And the definition of mission creep, if it's not a familiar term, is that it is a gradual or sort of incremental expansion uh, of what could be an intervention, a project, anything that then goes beyond its original scope. Okay, so we set out and say, our mission is to deliver aid, that's it. Well, and then over time it grows and becomes more of a military intervention, right? And so that's sort of the idea behind it. It's something that just grows beyond its original scope or its focus or the goals that were set in the beginning. And what happens when you have this thing called mission creep that begins to occur is that you end up spending an awful lot of time and resources and energy on something that ultimately was not what you originally set out to do in the first place, right? Um, you know, you were, you were supposedly originally called to pursue this one particular idea or goal or project, and then it sort of grows and takes on a life of its own, and now all of a sudden you're caught up in this thing and maybe don't even know how to stop it or how to get out of it, and you're spending all of this extra resource on something that you didn't really intend to do, and what ultimately happens is it actually dilutes the original goal. Because now your focus is spread, and you're not singularly focused on that one thing any longer. And I read a blog on this by a guy named Josh Daffern, and uh, I thought his words were pretty spot on, and so I'm just going to read this. It's a couple of paragraphs. But he says, I believe we've suffered mission creep as the church. If you go all the way back to the beginning, Jesus' commanded Jesus' command to his disciples was simple and clear-cut. Make disciples of all nations. And for a while, that's what the church did. And then mission creep set in. 
The church got distracted with power and influence. We built beautiful buildings and cathedrals to worship in a more aesthetically pleasing space. We wanted to educate ourselves with the Bible, so we built schools and universities. We couldn't get along with each other, so we created different denominations. We augmented the local church with parachurch organization after parachurch organization. We now have layers and layers of organizational structure. Amen? <laughs> I was pointing at Chip, just inside joke. On the outside, we look very impressive. But in the process, have we lost or maybe even abandoned the original mission that Jesus gave us, which was to make disciples? Mission creep. And so as we're going to see, I think, today clearly in these scriptures that I'm going to talk a little bit about, this idea of taking care of the least and the lost was um, a definite subset of what we were originally, uh, what Jesus originally called us to do. Um, and like everything else we've been talking about in this whole idea of the kingdom, we need the Holy Spirit's power in order to do that effectively. Amen? Okay. So the first scripture is from the Gospel of Mark. And it's Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I will apologize for not having anything up uh, that you can look at. I have two excuses. One, I was on a retreat with some other pastors for the last couple of days. And number two, my granddaughter was at the house this morning. And um, I'm sorry, but when she just comes up and points at me and says, Papa, I just kind of lose <laughs> my train of thought and just to choose to play with her. So, you know, shoot me. Guilty as charged. So Mark 2, 16 and 17 says this, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Excuse me, let me read that again. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. So, these folks called the Pharisees... Um, were teachers, and sometimes they were called scribes, they were basically the legal experts of their day. All right? They were the ones that understood the law, but not only did they interpret the law, but they also came up with a whole bunch of other rules that they believed were based on the law, and those things actually came to be as binding on Jews of that day as did the law that was written in the Torah. And so, um, you know, that's sort of how they saw themselves. They were all about the legalities of things. Do we still have Pharisees today? Yeah. It's not just a Jewish phenomenon. 
right? There are all kinds of Christian Pharisees that will tell us that the faith is about following the rules and doing all of these different things and ignore the fact that what it's primarily about is a relationship with Jesus. So here they are. They're all caught up in their law. And then along comes this man named Jesus. And he's very popular with all of the people. He teaches with this authority that they had never seen before. Um, he actually claimed to speak for God himself, which was a little bit upsetting to them. But, and then as if to really stick it to them, he ignored their laws. And it actually seemed like he was condoning sin because he kept company with all these people that were known as sinners. The tax collectors of the day, which... Um, probably more accurately, if we were thinking of them in today's terms, would be loan sharks. People that preyed on others um, uh, financially. Uh, prostitutes, that pretty much has stayed the same through the ages. Um, and just a variety of other people that you know, they labeled as sinners. And what's important to note here is that because of all these additional laws that these Pharisees had heaped upon the people, if someone didn't wash their hands before they ate, they were considered a sinner because they were impure, right? And this was not nothing that God had necessarily laid before them, but these are some of these things that they now said have to be there in order for you to be um, considered not a sinner or righteous, right? So these guys, they're watching... You know, every move that Jesus makes, they're constantly sending people to spy on him, to figure out, okay, what's he doing, what's he saying, basically because they wanted to figure out a way to trap him, to be able to get rid of him, because he was upsetting their nicely regulated little world. And so, um, all of a sudden, here's Jesus, and he sits down, and he actually eats with these sinners. And, and the Pharisees are aghast. It's like they're just beside themselves. You know, here's a guy who, as they observe him, he seems to have the entire law at his fingertips. He knows, knows it in a way that they don't even know it. Um, he teaches with such authority, as I mentioned earlier. But here he is, he's stooping to the level of the poor and the, um, really the miscasts of society or the outcasts of society, at least as it pertains to the way the Pharisees viewed the world. So they pull his disciples aside and they're like, why does your teacher do that? Doesn't he, he, does he not understand what he's doing? And Jesus, of course, knew full well what he was doing. And so he calls them out and he basically says, you know, he's acting in this fashion not because he's trying to be deliberately sinful, but why? It was the whole purpose of his mission. 
and it was irrefutable proof that he was the Messiah that had come. So, so if that's the reason that Jesus came, if that was his mission, then why don't the loan sharks and the tax cheats and the outcasts of society come to our church? And I don't just mean our church, I mean most churches. But we can use ours as an example. Now, if you're a loan shark or a tax cheat, I won't ask you to raise your hand just to prove you're here. <laughs> but I would reckon to say that probably no one is. Right? Not in the kind of in that really classical sense. Um, and the thing is, and this is kind of the kicker to the whole thing. What would we do if they actually showed up? <coughs> How would we react to them? Would we welcome them with open arms? Or would we shun them? Someone who comes in here who's dressed a little differently than we are. Someone who comes in here and... Um, well, let's just be real. Starts dropping F-bombs all over the place. Jesus loves them too, right? Okay, so they're a little rough around the edges. Does that mean we push them out the door? Like, well, you know, we don't really want people talk like that here. I've had folks that have, been, have come through this church who, you know, almost equate smoking to some sort of great sin. Okay, well, smoking's not good for you. I don't, we certainly don't <laughs> encourage anyone to smoke. But it's not like Jesus has something against smokers. So that's something that we really have to think about it. You know, if those folks came in the church, and, and I, I'll stop right here and tell this story. I mean, Robbie Dawkins is a name that you'll hear throughout the vineyard. He's a guy, he, he works very powerfully in signs and wonders and miracles, and he goes all over the world praying for people and, and, and evangelizing through that. You know, that's really his primary calling is as an evangelist who happens to move in that kind of power. And he, he works pretty much exactly the way the gospel uh, or the, the book of Acts talks about the way the disciples moved, right? They demonstrated God's power and then they talked about the God behind it, right? And so... He was praying, you know, he had been praying for the longest time to have people, you know, just that everybody would come into his church. So he has this dream. And in this dream, he walks into his church and it's full. It's packed out. Which normally you would think, well, that's a good thing. But it's full of tax cheats and prostitutes and pushers and drug addicted folks and hobos and you know the outcasts of society and they're all over the church and they're all doing the stuff that they do on the outside they're actually doing it on the inside of the church so drug deals are going down 
we won't talk about the prostitutes, um, but all that other stuff is probably happening. And he's stunned, and he's like, God, what's going on? Why are all these people in my church? And the Lord answers him and says, because that's what you ask me for. You ask me to send you these people. See, and that's so typical of our response. We're like, oh no. There goes our perfect little church. Wimber used to talk about this, you know, the, the idea that he was, when, when he was part of a church, John Wimber the, is who sort of founded the vineyard, okay, or is responsible for a lot, lot of its direction. And he was pastoring a church at the time, and he was an amazing evangelist, and he was bringing folks into this church by the hundreds. I mean, if you read the material, I'm not exaggerating. And the folks in the church were not happy about it. Because now all of a sudden, these people were coming in that they, they had given their life to Jesus. But as you all know, just because you give your life to Jesus, it doesn't mean that suddenly you're perfect. And so he lament, you know, he's hearing all of this negative feedback about what's going on in his church. And, you know, what he's thinking is, well, I thought the idea was just to catch them. I didn't know I'd have to clean them, too. You know, speaking in the terms of fishing. So, you know, he was, and I think so often that's kind of the how, that's how we look at it. And we, we got to stop that, right? We want, that's who we want to be here. That's who need Jesus. That's who Jesus said he came for. Okay? I think I've beat that enough. All right, we're going to look at a different scripture. This one sort of involves the disciples. And this is in, Ma it's just one verse in Matthew. It's uh, chapter 25, verse 40. And um, what this, the verse is as follows. And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, brothers in this case, is in the, if you look in the Greek, it's really a generic term that also can include sisters, so it's not just, men this is everybody all right and so Jesus is, is sort of defining probably the one important component in why we are to remain alert and be ready for the Messiah's return we do it because we're faithfully doing kingdom work if we're meeting the needs of those who are around us and his intent seems to be that it's how we treat the lowly and the needy that really determine the extent to which we love Jesus. See, if Christians who have resources would help both needy fellow Christians and non-Christians, those people would be totally persuaded by the validity of the love we proclaim to have. It's got to demonstrate itself, um, as we're going to see, in action. But I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. There, the one thing that I, I want to make sure we understand in this, though, 
is this idea that there's the potential for an error here that we need to make sure we don't fall into. And that is the idea that we, we cannot make this passage in any way say that salvation is by good works. Okay, that's totally out of, the, uh, out of the context of this. If we just were sort of to read this superficially, it might give us the impression that if we just help our neighbors, that that would be sufficient for us to go to heaven. But that is not at all what Jesus is saying. That has never happened in the history of the world. Good works, no matter how many, will not, cannot get you or me or anyone into heaven. In the Old Testament, the way to get there was you had faith in God. From a new covenant perspective, it's faith in Jesus. It's believing in who Jesus is and what he did. Okay, so we can't kind of drop into that and just say that, hey, just because we're doing it, and you, you will run into people all the time who will say things like, well, I don't really need to go to church and I don't need Jesus because I'm a good person. Okay. But this book says that's not enough. It's not enough to just be a good person. You need to, be, to have Jesus as well as being a good person. Right? Okay. And then finally, this idea um, of for the church, and that's kind of these three areas that we've been looking at each week is this, this idea from Jesus' perspective, from the disciples' perspective, from the church's perspective, and then finally, we'll read some more stories about how this is uh, going on today. And the, the last passage we're going to look at is from James, and it's James 127. James chapter 1, verse 27. And it says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The emphasis here is that for God to accept our worship, it has to be accompanied by a loving ministry, and a holy life. And I think he chose widows and orphans because that, those were the most prominent examples of the least of these in Scripture. Um, It's not, you know, this is not intended to give us some, some sort of an exhaustive definition of Christianity. That's not, you know, what James is saying here. Um, we're to care for the orphans and widows in their distress. And the reason that they're mentioned so often in the early church is that they were the most obviously poor in first century Israel. See, the widows had no access to inheritance in Jewish circles. They were sort of on the outskirts of society, okay? That's why Paul had to develop an entire order concerning widows in his own churches, if you read Timothy, in 1 Timothy. See, it's ex it was ex the, the widows couldn't get jobs, so they were expected to be cared for by their oldest sons, because that's who got the inheritance, all right? 
And so because they were, it, the expectation was there that their families would take care of them, there was very little societal economic support for them. It just wasn't anywhere um, part of their culture. And so unless a family member was willing to take care of them, they were reduced to begging or selling themselves or other things that they could, uh, maybe as slaves, just to survive. And so by caring for these powerless people, the church was actually putting God's work into practice. Right? Paul and James in particular here are telling the Christians, you've got to get out of that old mindset. These are people that deserve care and support and love. And orphans, of course, just got lost in the shuffle. Right? I mean, unless somebody knew them and was willing to take them into their household, they were left on their own. And probably many died as a result of that because they had there was no way they could, uh, they really didn't have anything to offer in society. And I think, you know, we don't really have that sort of cultural situation any longer. But in a, in a way, we do. You know, I mean, if you think of the idea of, you look at the death of families through a divorce and what happens there, right? You end up with, Families that are torn apart and broken, and they're hurting. And we're supposed to be there to, to care for them, as well as all of the others that are in those other categories that I, that I mentioned as well. And, and the thing is that looking after hurting people can be stressful. but we're called to be involved, regardless of how stressful it may be. I've been reading a book recently um, about the Jesuits. And I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Jesuits, but it's a, an order that was formed by Ignatius Loyola uh, back in the 16th century, I think. And uh, he was a Spaniard who had been uh, quite the swashbuckling young dude. Uh, his goal in life was to uh, fight in battles and love all the ladies. I mean, and that was how he dressed. That was how he conducted himself. Uh, descriptions of what he looked like are pretty amusing. Um, just he, he evidently was quite the dandy when he went out on the town. And he was in a battle at one point, and uh, w he was hit in the leg by a cannonball. And, of course, it shattered his leg. And so he went through um, a lot of painful surgery and rehabilitation. And um, as a result, he, he was left with a limp for the rest of his life. And because he was laid up in, this, in his family castle, he was looking for something to read. And one of his relatives brought him a book about the works of Jesus. We didn't really want to read that. He wanted to read stories of knights and conquest and battle and manly things. <coughs> but he didn't have anything else to read. <laughs> so he starts to read these stories about Jesus. And this idea takes a hold of him. And it's like, well, 
what if I could lead a life like Jesus and like all these other saints that I'm reading about? What if I could do that? And, and that just sort of overcomes him. And he then goes on to, uh, and, and I won't go through the whole story, but I mean, he eventually, you know, he tells his family they're very much against it. He goes anyway, uh, goes to a monastery, lives there for a while, um, goes through a period of real um, asceticism, which is sort of denying yourself various things. So he was fasting a lot, lots of prayer, and, and just living very simply sort of, you know, removing himself from the ways of the world. But what eventually happened was, he, he sort of came through that period um, and went back to school and sort of gathered some guys around him. And they came up with this idea, and it was really Ignatius, who was the leader of this, who said, what if we could live a life of practical Christianity? A life where we see God in everything that is around us. A life in which we were contemplatives, but contemplatives who take action. Right? That's the key. We, we, we contemplate God, but yet we, when we see a need, we go off to meet it. And if you read about some of the exploits of, of some of these Jesuits, it's astounding the impact that they had on the world. I mean, in, in practically every major category you can think of, art, science, music, medicine, you name it, there's a Jesuit or two or three or several that have had an influence. In fact, 35 of the craters on the moon are named after Jesuit scientists. Well, now you do. <laughs> so if you got nothing else out of this message, you now have a fun fact to tell all your friends. My point is not craters on the moon. It's the idea that just as these guys found that they could live out a practical spirituality, we can too. And that's what these messages are calling us to do is to have a spirituality that is practical, that when we see the need, we meet it. Now I'm going to read a couple of the stories. We've been reading from this book, Come Holy Spirit. And this first one um, is called, Jesus Opened Your Ears. And it goes like this. Each Thursday at a church in Arizona, volunteers from several diff different churches volunteer for a Hispanic chaplaincy organization dedicated to helping the migrant community. Um, ICE, the government agency, brings about 35 new migrant families to the building each week. So for those of you that think ICE does nothing but throw people out of the country, here's a different perspective on that. Friendly volunteers welcome the migrant parents and children, feed them, hold babies, while mothers take hot showers, host a time of worship, and tend to various needs. Meanwhile, the, directors make, the director makes phone calls to the relatives and sponsors of the family and arranges the next leg of travel for each family. Volunteers then drive them to the bus station or, or, or airport and say goodbye. So in other words, they're helping 
integrate these migrant families into the communities, right, by helping them take the next step along the path. It's a special work, and you can bet the Holy Spirit is all over it. One Thursday, a volunteer named Joan was holding a baby while the mother showered. Later, she'd be the driver to the bus station. Someone told Joan that the young mother had been deaf and mute since birth. The petite Guatemalan woman had never heard or spoken a word. She used hand gestures to communicate. Before leaving the bus station, Joan felt compelled to pray for this sweet woman's ears. As Joan put her hands on the woman's ears, she sensed the Holy Spirit leading her to rebuke a deaf and mute spirit. In other words, tell it to go away. Just like the way Jesus prayed for the boy in the Gospel of Mark. Joan prayed in this way, unsure of what would happen, but sure of the power of God. Suddenly the woman began to cry. Her ears instantly opened. For the first time in her life, she could hear. Other families began to gather around the spectacle, wondering what had happened. The program director, Mary, taught the woman her first word. Want to guess what it was? Jesus. He is the one who opened your ears, Mary explained with hand signals in Spanish. The young mother spoke the name of Jesus with an English accent. Mary and the others laughed and celebrated with her. Then Mary shared with the entire group about a God who heals and who cares for each one of them. This one, I think, may strike a little bit closer to home to <coughs> for many of us. This is called Find the Money. Walking down the street one day on his lunch break, Anthony ran into a street person he'd come across before. Radka was an elderly Slavic woman with a particularly abrasive personality. Even among the homeless community, she was an outcast. Sounds like one of the ones that came to Robbie's church in his dream. As soon as she saw Anthony, she ran straight to him and demanded money for coffee. Give me money, give me money, she barked in his face, her unpleasant odor wafting into his nostrils. Anthony was no stranger to street ministry and worked with homeless people, but when it came to Radka, he struggled to have compassion for her. See? It's okay to struggle with that. So often I think when we're dealing in situations like this, we think we have to be perfect, but it's okay. We, we all still struggle. She was a hard person to deal with. Again, he was instantly put off by her attitude. Everything in him wanted to keep walking. He didn't have any money anyway. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit spoke three clear words to his heart. Find the money. Anthony stopped and looked at Radka, her open hand jutting into his chest, her elderly face, face harsh and twisted. Find the money, Anthony heard the Holy Spirit say again. Wait here, Radka, I'll be right back. No, you won't. You're not coming back. No way you're coming back. Wait here. I'll be right back, Anthony assured her. He hurried through the, the few blocks back to his office and did just what the Holy Spirit had instructed, find the money. Desk drawers were flung open to feel for loose change under papers and in corners. Gathering every last, 
last coin his desk had hidden, Anthony counted just enough for a cup of coffee. Anthony was running now, down the stairs and across the street, determined to get back to Radka as quickly as possible. Here's the money for your coffee, Radka. Anthony ex exhaled as he dropped the coins into her hand. Oh, man, this is hard. She looked up at Anthony, her eyes filling with tears, and planted a big sloppy kiss on his cheek. You came back. She hugged him tightly. Thank you, thank you. Anthony's effort meant a great deal to her. She was smiling bright, having been seen and valued. The Holy Spirit had put a three-word thought into his mind that cut through his own frustration and judgment. Had he not <coughs> heeded that still small voice, he would have missed out on partnering with God to show Radka how much she mattered. See, that's how we partner with the Holy Spirit in these things. It's getting that nudge to do something that we would not normally do. And I got such a nudge. So Chip, before you start, would you come down here? You and the whole worship team. Just stand, no, stand with facing me across the front here. So I was, um, as I was working on this message, this is kind of interesting, I have to sort of peek <laughs> between you to see everybody. Maybe I should go over here, find the shortest person and just talk over the top of her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I was praying about this and, and, and working on this message, and you know, the thought came to me, that in a sense, and, and this is a very general sense, but these folks, when it comes to having times of, of prayer, these guys are kind of the least because they're always giving of themselves. They're never in a position where they can come and receive. And so I felt like at least to start our prayer time today that it was important that to take the time to pray for, for, th for those who so selflessly give of their time and their talent to lead us in worship and ask for nothing in return. And yet are always in that position and doing those kinds of things and, and, and not able to come forth when we offer prayer or when we say, come Holy Spirit. And so, if you would start some of our music and, and get our lights. Right, come down a little bit with that, if you will, please. That's good, thank you. So if I could have somebody uh, back in that corner and then someone back in that corner uh, who would be there if you need prayer for anything please go and see these 
folks. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe that God answers prayer. We believe that he answers prayer in ways that many other people don't believe he does anymore. That's what separates us from a lot of churches, quite frankly. You can go to many churches and you can hear a good sermon, you can hear some fine music, you can go out feeling encouraged, and there's nothing wrong with those churches. We believe in this church that God still does the sort of things that he talks about in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the entire New Testament. And we pray for those things. And we regularly see the miraculous happen. And so if you have a need, no matter how great or how small, that's the other thing that seems to catch people. You know, they'll be on death's door and they'll come up here, probably because there are no other options. But if you've got, you know, a pain in your back or your neck or, a, you know, a hand that doesn't work quite right, we tend to think, well, that's just not important enough to ask for prayer for because God probably doesn't really care about my sore hand. Well, you know what? That's a total lie. That is a total lie. God cares as much God loves you with a love that is so overwhelming, you can't even begin to fathom it in this life. And that includes wanting you to be healed and whole and healthy. So, if you need prayer, please go see one of these folks that are standing at the back. I'm going to pray for these guys. You're welcome just to stay and worship. Or if you need to, to go, you're welcome to do that too. I'm just going to pray a little blessing over you. And then we'll kind of go into this third part of our service. So, Father God, I just give you thanks and praise for your words today. I pray that each one of these people will see this work toward the least and the lost and the lonely of this world in a new light. That we would approach those who are downtrodden and without the benefit of jobs and, and education and all of the things that many of us take so for granted that we would view them in a different way and that we would look to the Holy Spirit to empower how we approach them and what we do that we too will hear words like find the money and be able to meet the need but it may not always be money. It may sometimes be simply praying for them as uh, Peter and John did for the man who begged at the uh, gate beautiful as they were headed into the temple. Silver and gold we have not, they said, but we will give you what we have, which is the Holy Spirit. And they prayed for him and he was healed. So Father, I just I pray a blessing now upon all of those who are here. Anoint them with power and boldness to go forth in this world and to no longer ignore but actually welcome those who are society's outcasts and da the downtrodden, the poor, those who especially need a touch of you, even the radkas of this world. 
So bless them, Father. Strengthen them and guide them. We lift all this up to you now. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would all just hands at your side. Just be in a posture to receive. You all are great givers. You're really good at giving. But this is your time to receive. I'm desperate for